Well, I'm a croc wearer. So, oh, oh, no, mate. Yeah. Wow. Crocs. Yeah, 100%. I've just loved them for the minute oh. they came came into my life. They're the worst. All over them. Sport mode or sport leisure mode? Sport mode. <laughs> yes. No, like, I would live life in it yeah. if I could. Yeah. Absolutely froth on them. Oh, man. They're, I they're can't so tell what my family calls them, but I'm comfortable. <laughs> <laughs>
Like, mm-hmm. like I was always a fan in the old school days when it's wrapped up chips. There'd be ones that would end up in there that have gone through the Ferrara a bunch of times. Yeah. They're the ones you go to, like yeah. the dark brown ones. Yeah. Like, uh-huh. Which I think today the fancy name for it is double cooked or triple cooked mm. or whatever. Mm. Basically, let them be in that oil for a while. <laughs> they, don't rip them out early where they're yeah. just kind of only just... And they get yeah. a bit soggy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't like that. No. So, and then it's all about the condiments. So, whether it's, you know, you kind of... Your aiolis or yeah, mm-hmm. all of that. I came across something I thought I'd really love called poutine. Oh, yeah. Canada. Yeah, Canada. Yeah. And I was just at a sports bar and I'm like, yeah. I read the description and I'm like, hot chips with slow-cooked pork Ooh, and cheese melted pork, over it. Oh, well, yeah. And I'm like, how do I not know about this? Like, yeah. that just sounds like the best ever thing. i got to say, I got halfway through that thing and I was just like... It's too much. (laughs) (laughs) Just beat me. Absolutely beat me. Because normally, isn't it chips, cheese curds, and chicken gravy? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, all those kinds of... Yeah, yeah, look, I don't know the traditional recipe. I've not followed it because after that one hit... I've tried it a couple of other times. Same result. Just like, wow, that's that's just too much. I find the order is important with that. Because you want the cheese... If they put the cheese on top... Then the gravy just makes everything an absolute sog fest. Yeah. So if you if you go chips, cheese, then gravy, then you kind of got that barrier. Mm. It keeps <laughs> everything going you go, well. You know this. Mm. I'm like, yeah. I just, I oh, yeah. Again, like I don't want hot chips too blonde because yeah, it just becomes an absolute sog fest. That's not yeah. fun for anyone. No, totally yeah. agree. One of the things I I found actually in Switzerland that I thought is an absolute piece of genius. Yeah. Which would be applied to the chips as well. Mm. And when you mentioned soggy, it reminded me of it. They put their snitchel yeah. on top of the gravy. Ooh. Oh, yeah. So, you know, yeah. so it just kind of sits nicely on top. Mm. Same with the chips. Yeah. Put them at the bottom. Don't let yeah. it just, and then you can just sort of get your own level of gravy. Yeah. Okay. So, like all of those things, chips on roll. Yeah. You know, just with gravy. Mm. Fantastic. And you said condiments, sorry. What sauces? Oh, you said just like anything, anything else. Like, yeah. yeah, like your chilies, your. Just whatever's going, like yeah. just a bit of barbie or like a chutney. Ooh. Smash them all. Oh, okay. HS, HS balls? Have you ever yeah. had a HS balls puck chutney? No. It's next level. I was just like, what's HS balls? It's a South African, yes, brand. South African brand right. of mm. chutney. Yeah. Ooh. So it's a standard. You can get it surprisingly everywhere here. And I first came across it with uh, potato chips in a packet and it was HS balls flavoured and I'm smashing them in South Africa, absolutely yeah. smashing them and saying, you didn't know that's a, just a chutney. And I'm like, where is that? So <laughs> got some of that, brought it back to Australia mm. and then found it here in Lake Woolworths. Oh, really? It's like, it's just a friend on anything. <laughs> friend, not friend on anything. Anything. It's really, really good. Yeah, really good. Recommend it. Oh, okay. Just yeah. have it in your... Sadly, my son lives down the coast. Every time I'm down there, if there's none, I go and put it in his fridge. So he's <laughs> stocked where stocked I got up. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, very nice. Is there any way in particular you like like to get your hot chips or like you've got a fam- like a family, like a childhood memory of when you've uh, been eating chips? There was a, there used to be, it's not there anymore, the top end of Gaimi. Uh, so the northern Indigomi, there was a fish and chip shop. Yeah. And a dude in there used to make chop up potatoes. Oh, yes. And they were like, so none of this 
pre. Yeah. Business, like mm. they were straight up chips. They were, that's what I remember from my childhood is just like an epic chip was actual proper potato. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was as dodgy as in terms of his <laughs> cleaning. Like you walk in there, it's one of those old school places <laughs> where you're just like, pretty sure that oil's been there. For the day yes. opened. <laughs> maybe that's why. That's why maybe it tastes so good. Cool. Yeah, exactly. It's just yeah. had chips. You need some oil that's seen some years things. And years and years. <laughs> need a well beat up oil. Like, <laughs> yeah. 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 Wow. yeah, a very experienced oil. Yeah. There's a place in uh, down in Coldale, Coldale that they make their own um, potato scallops, and they're, oh, yeah. they're real good. If you get if they, as long as they cook them right, that's it. this seems to be the key. Like the preparation is one thing, but mm. the as long as they cook them right, then it tastes really good. Yep. But again, don't want a sog fest. Oh, <laughs> no. Sog fest. That's a funny <laughs> word. Same with the batter. Like the thing yeah. with the scallop mm. is that it can be so battery. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yep, too much. Too much. Or too little. You have the right amount. <laughs> <laughs> Goldilocks over here. What's that? Um, <laughs> the Japanese batter, what's that called? Oh, um, tempura. Tempura. Oh. That's the tempura veggie. Imagine that on a potato. It'd be epic. Yeah. Oh, right. We have a... Uh, Japanese restaurant just near our place, and they do a tempura veggie thing, and they're just so smashable. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. smashable. With do you put just balls on it? I would if I had it. <laughs> I'm sitting in a restaurant, but yeah, yeah. no, that's that'd be fair enough. Yeah, do right. you have a salt preference for chips, like chicken salt, plain salt? Uh, I probably go the chicken salt, but oh, I don't yes. really know why. Cause it's just tradition, isn't it? Yeah, it just it worked its way in my life. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel right. Yeah. Like it doesn't feel like it should be right, but I got to say, yeah. probably always go that way. Yeah. It's disappointing. It's just how it's meant yeah, to be. sorry. That's all right. Yeah, you know how we have a bit of a battle between plain salt and chicken salt? No. Ethan and Brayden are chicken salt Ethan and Brayden are right. Yeah, okay. And Joel's, I don't know. More right. More right. <laughs> Extra correct. <laughs> Happy living in sin. Let's put it that way. I've seen a bunch of burger places now. They put some other seasoning on it. That's not right. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Yeah. It's some sort of... It's almost like I think it's from the sort of Korean kind of culinary world. Oh, okay. Mm. It's like some sort of... It's messed up. It just tastes like chemical. But it, oh. It's showing up more and more. Okay. That's what I like that. speaking to Grace. How she was she like, oh, I like to try all like special like Korean and... Um, I forget the other other salt that she was saying, but it was like yeah, like umami flavored stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like I reckon that's what it is. Mm. It's not. Well, we had popcorn with MSG on it the other night at late night. Jabish actually made it. It was really good. Yeah, MSG is an interesting Isn't one. Isn't meant to be the thing that everyone claims is good not to have? They what? said that, but now they're swinging back the other way. Yeah, right. It's one of those things like bacon gives you cancer. Bacon oh, saves okay. you from cancer. Like who knows. Just it enjoy it. Save you. If you have cancer, bacon eat bacon and it will me. save you. Yeah, <laughs> You know the thing. Like yeah. Coffee's killing you. Actually, coffee's good for you. Yeah. Who oh, knows? one glass of wine a day is good for you. And then it's not good for you. And yeah. Et cetera. Yeah. yeah. So anyway. I'll keep, uh, uh, keep experimenting with that. <laughs> <laughs> not on this podcast. No, we should move on. Yeah. <laughs> um, the next question is, Anthony, how did you become a Christian? I uh, became a Christian probably 
like over a thousand times. I reckon. <laughs> like it, I thought you said a thousand years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, oh, now age jokes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can't let you can't be vulnerable here, can you? It's not a safe place. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. Look, uh, certainly late teens. Um, I became so I didn't grow up in a Christian family. Um, but I, I was certainly born into a loving family. Um, and so I suppose and part of our culture was that there was you know, faith all around us because Christianity was quite central in society at the time. But I just had very limited awareness. Yeah. I can actually remember, and I was well and truly into my teens, realising that Easter was a religious thing. Just having oh, yeah. no idea. There's just no, no focus on it. And then I know I started... Uh, getting involved with the wrong people as maybe 16, 17. And I remember my mum taking me to Gormy Baps and just kind of, as all mums do, try and steer me toward better people in my life. And I was just sitting there just going, I've got no idea what's going on. Like, I don't understand any of this. I'm so bored. Like, I, I had no chance if it was through that kind of expression of Christianity. So it wasn't until I started to meet people who were involved in the Christian surfers movement um, and then most importantly started to become friends with Karen, who's now my wife, who was also sort of exploring Christianity and getting involved in church. And it was really, they were the first Bible that I ever read, uh, was people treating me differently, having a different relationship with people and just going, I don't really understand what, what's going on with these people, but gee, they're different. Yeah. And then obviously for Christian surfers, you'd be at some event and they'd start talking about faith. And I'm just, again, I'm like typical kind of male in his late teens, just a lot of tumbleweed, just not really getting it, to be honest, just not understanding it just knowing that there was kind of a fragrance to these friendships that was really beautiful mm. and that drew me probably more than ever yeah sitting in a in a vent or a church and hearing the message of the gospel mm. and and then of course i started going to church and getting involved in church and i just couldn't i don't know why i was set up this way but i was just set up that i'm not in I just constantly believed I was not in because yeah. I was just living that life of I had my friendships that were less than wholesome and what we were involved in there. And then I had this new group of friends who we would you know, know now as, as people living out of Christian faith. And I was just living in both worlds. So every time I came back to this world, I felt like oh, well, I, need to, I need to respond to Jesus. So I just, you know, every altar call, I was down there, like, I guess I should be doing this again. And <laughs> so it took a long time, and it really probably wasn't until my early 20s when I actually decided I'm a follower of Jesus, and what does that actually mean in my life, mm. that I would say I started to become a disciple. So... I let the theologians work out when I was in because uh, <laughs> I think my heart was was mostly there but mm. then not there. Mm. And most of that I think was just about not completely understanding what was being asked of me, mm. just having emotional responses to you know, a good evangelist or a 
or good people I was starting to trust in my Christian world um, inviting me to make a decision about Jesus and saying, yeah, I'm solidly up for that. But then I've got these mates I'm going to go hang out with for the rest of the week. Yeah. And that's just a life. And so I, I got stuck in a very kind of black and white world for a long time then. It was really two friendships, my friendship with Karen at the time, that was obviously emerging into something more and she was certainly the first person I think I clearly was like, wow, I really feel quite strongly toward this person. And another mate, a guy named Eric, who just stuck by me because I was a bit of a loser. I was a lot of a loser. Like my whole behaviour for the rest of the week and the guys I was hanging out with was just, you know, was not somebody you want. If they turned up, at your home, yeah, you'd be going pretty keen for my kids not to be <laughs> hanging out with yeah. this guy, yeah. you know. And I, I was outwardly trying to express all of that, so I was in the worst clothing like you could find, for instance, Vinnie's, and that was the surf culture of the time. So, believe it or not, bald as I am now, long blonde hair was just—I <laughs> don't know—it hadn't been washed in a very long time. It was just washed by the ocean and. <laughs> probably stunk like just just no real idea of self just any pride mm -hmm. um just just hating at the world no real reason why again born yeah. into a loving family yeah uh born into people that surrounded me with love and yet i was drawn to darkness i was drawn to rebellion i was drawn to the edges mm -hmm. and i got excited when i was off the map yeah. rather than when I was on it. And so that just drew me as a young guy with the right or with the wrong circle of friends. It just drew me to just ordinary things. Yeah. Can you can you give us a bit more insight into how that was like? Was is was it like puberty blues? Or was it No, no, no. That That's was, I mean that's the thing that I'm thinking of yeah, when you're saying. Yeah, and I can I imagine I can see accurate. why you would. It was it was far tamer than that. Like yeah, I was Certainly hanging around Cronulla, I was in the surf culture uh, and everything that comes with that in terms of uh, substances and 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 kind of partying and, and you know, kind of low-level violence, mostly surf-related, so mm. it's very localised. Cronulla was very localised and so uh, there were the Cornell boys, there were the Allura, uh, the Allura boys and there was the, you know, the guys at the, the point and stuff like that and... And they were different groups and I wasn't really in with any of them, but I knew a lot of them. And so if there were fights, then you got drawn into that sort of stuff. But again, mostly you were just like, I'm so scared. Mm, like, Really? Yeah, totally. And I think a lot of guys in that world are, it's fear they're experiencing, but they express it as courage. And yeah. masculinity, like yeah, they're looking yeah. for a, to express their masculinity. Yeah, and, and mateship and, yeah. and then sure, then eventually adrenaline and, aggression might kick in and so i wouldn't necessarily say i sought violence or i was a violent person yeah but i was with people that were and i was just like well this is life isn't it like yeah. well, you just find yourself there you just i don't know how to chart my way out of this was there something that initially drew you towards the surf culture though was it just no no actually no just i just loved up? the sport itself yeah, really yeah. Um, and it's just so happened that they were the people that were yeah there. well you, you yeah. in cronulla in that in yeah. that context I, I was with a mate we both learned to surf probably when we were about 13 12 13 and so yeah. we'd have our 
50 buck Jacko board and we'd yeah. catch the train down and we were just so keen on surfing. Mm. Both of us were just in the water all the time, before school, after school. And, you know, any other time we could, I remember yeah. just being so sunburnt, seriously sunburnt <laughs> on the weekends because you're just in the yeah. water as much yeah. as you could be on a weekend. Yeah. In any conditions, and so it was. It was de- genuinely the sport. Yeah. But then, but then when you, you're hanging around, yeah. Yeah. then yeah. eventually you start coming across people in the water. When I sort of, sort of fifteen, sixteen, I started to get better at surfing. So then I was surfing heavier breaks like the Point and Shark Island, and and a couple of other the Point breaks along South Cronulla there. And so then you, if you're holding your own in the water, then people are starting to. You know, you get to know people. Yeah. A bit of respect. A little yeah. bit, yeah. And so, again, wasn't in the centre of the culture. Yeah. Uh, but was on the fringes of it. And just trying to search and, I suppose, probably to answer your question predominantly, is about, I was searching for belonging. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I just wanted to belong somewhere and whoever would have me. Because, uh, I, I, again, surprisingly, for someone who grew up in such a loving family, mm. my perspective, my perception of myself was not particularly high. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't good at school, and because I wasn't good at school, and other than one teacher who saw me, um, most were just had ridden me off. So yeah, I just kind right. of was like, yep, yeah, okay. good. Well, if you're going to so ride, ride me off, I'll yeah, ride you off. Yeah, yeah not, well, but also I write myself off. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't, I don't matter. Yeah. And this doesn't matter to me. So yeah. school for me was an utter waste of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, again, all I was known for was trouble. Um, and, you know, I feel sad about that because I think the person I was then was somebody who was actually looking for acceptance and for mm. belonging. Would have taken it anywhere, but because I couldn't excel in school, it was like one or the other. Yeah. You either do or you don't. Yeah. And I went through a particular year where the, the smart kids were, were kind of the cool kids. They were not the nerds, like, mm. or somehow looked down on. It was actually those that were struggling that were more considered the outcast. Mm. Uh, a lot of the people that were quite in your higher, whatever, grades of classes were often the most popular. Is that a cultural thing or just for your year, do you reckon? I think it was just for my year. Okay. Uh, maybe it is cultural. I haven't really thought about it, to be honest. Mm. All I know is that was certainly true for me. Like, yeah. I. You know, I was aware of them and I was just like, I'm not you in every way. Mm-hmm. So, so where am I? Where do I belong? Yeah, and so you're being told, oh, well, you don't belong at school in a sense because you're not, whether either it's the teaching style or the way that you learn or anything like that, yeah. you're like, no, this is no good for me, so I'm going to go find belonging somewhere else. You're passionate about surfing. So then there's the culture around surfing, you're like, oh, at least here somewhere is like, I'm seen as, I'm respected in a certain degree because of my surfing ability. And then, oh, do I belong to this culture? Yeah. And trying to find belonging in that as well. 100%. That was exactly it. And so I would never have rated myself as awesome at surfing, but it was good enough Yeah, yeah. to say, I can hang out here yeah. um, and I can, you know, you learn the language, you learn the kind of the subculture of, mm. in terms of all of its rules, which included all of the partying elements of it. Yeah, and the and territorial stuff. Yeah, and that, all, yeah. all of that stuff. And you just and you know, somewhat indoctrinated into it. You don't realise that that's what's happening. You just think, oh, this is normal. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and so then I started, and then I had some other friends that you know were more related to partying in the city. I found the city, oh, and right. again, it was life was then about get to Friday, mm. um, 
have dinner at home and then head to the city 10 o'clock and really come home by Sunday lunchtime, Sunday wow. afternoon and sleep and get ready for, like, and just be out. Just mm-hmm. be out. I had a, somewhere I could stay in the city um, and so I often did and or I just crashed wherever and just loved it. Loved the city. I loved the life of the city. Um, so then I had a world there. I had my surfing world and then I had my school friends that then, as soon as school finished, I didn't uh, stay in contact with any of my friends at school other than Karen. Mm. Yeah. Can you tell us, what do you love about surfing so much? What I did love, I, I don't really surf much anymore. I get out on a paddleboard. Um, mm. What I did love was just the ocean and again, the uh, is this, didn't, this awareness didn't come till much later, but I know it was true of me from the start. And that was, I love the power of the ocean. Mm. I love how unknown it was, how mysterious it was, mm. and how it could be so beautiful, but it could, with complete indifference, kill you yeah. if it right. wanted to. Wow. And there was something about that, like to personify it, that I was drawn to in that sense. And so drawn to... Almost the darkness of it, the edges of it, like everything in life, I just seemed to be somehow, I don't know what it was, because it's not, a, it might come across like, oh, he's a uh, courageous person or he's a charger or something like that. It wasn't really that. It was more, I was almost a fascination with the edges and mm-hmm. the danger. Yeah. And then I've since seen that reveal itself in lots of other ways in my life mm-hmm. in terms of work I've done and when I would be most alive in some of the work that I've been involved in was when it was on the edges, um, you know, and it even being lost is somewhere where I get excited. Yeah. Um, so, so would you say like your risk tolerance is a lot higher than other people's? I, I guess I don't know if it's about risk tolerance um, because in some regards some would say to me who've worked with me, I'm really conscious of risk. Um, tolerance of it, maybe. I think what I was more drawn to is um, whatever it is that is about being off the map. Mm. Adventure, whether you want to call it that, or whether it's just been about being out of control, that, for me, has like an adrenaline response. Mm. It's an excitement response. It's not a... My first response is not fear. Fear is present. It's always present. Even when I've surfed in much larger waves I never got to where I wanted to go to in terms of being an experienced like big wave surfer I was only really just a surfer who could go out in a bit of size but and I really only had a, a few opportunities of that one of them were up in, was up in Noosa and Karen has her side of her story of this um it was a cyclone swell it was absolutely perfect it was huge and there was just three of us out and I was completely I've never been so inside of an experience. I was loving everything about it. It was wow. teeming with rain. Poor Karen's on the beach <laughs> with all the cameras. and oh, well, not even on the beach, on the rocks with really large lizards. <laughs> I found out later. <laughs> and I was in the ocean yeah. uh, with two mates and we just surfed for like four hours. Oh, wow. And I would just, it fell five minutes. I was completely lost oh. in yeah. that experience. And so when I think back, that's the, the experience that comes to mind is the most uh, deeply inside of something and just loving it. Yeah. And mostly because it's, it's so big mm. 
and there's fear again it's not to say i was not i was courageous in it it was just but i'm just excited by this yeah and so that that's manifesting really difficult ways in my life and in really positive ways is there a curiosity there like yeah it's a fascination and curiosity it's somewhat even morbid um (laughs) you know like there's almost uh like i wouldn't have said i would never say that i've had a death wish yeah but it's the same thing like death is like that's the map that's the edges of the map that's when we cross over into something else yeah and it's just like how close to that can you get Mm. like that is still a again a morbid fascination it's not one of i want this i want to be really clear about this because i think sometimes it's been interpreted as oh you're just really courageous and brave and that's not yeah it's not what it feels like yeah it's a fascination yeah um and again it's it's brought as it did in those early years of becoming a Christian, it brought brokenness into my life. It brought uh, bad decisions into my life because, you know, at that age you're following you're following unchecked desires. You're following unchecked things inside of you that are driving your behaviour yeah. and uh, driving the people you want to be friends with. And again, when I think about some of my best friends, in each of those environments, they were people that would have had death wishes, I reckon. Mm. They didn't care if they, they lived or died in some of the things that I watched them do. Yeah. Where I drew the line and just went, no, nah, no, nah, you're losing it now. So there was a part where I know that's where I was different. Yeah. Does that mean you were keen on like uh, roller coasters and jumping All of that stuff. Skydiving. Yeah, like just jumping off anything. Have you done bungee jumping before? Yeah, I've oh, done man. a lot of bungee jumping. Have you? I just, yeah. I just couldn't do it. No, see, that's a good example, again, of it. It's full of fear. There's so much fear there. But there's also something that, for those who enjoy it, you come to life. You never feel more alive. So there's one jump I've done a bunch of times in South Africa that's from underneath a bridge. It's supposedly, I don't know if it's true, one of the largest in the Southern Hemisphere. And it's it's about 250-metre free fall. And then... A counterweight kicks in, so the cord doesn't kick in. A counterweight kicks in to slow oh. you down, and then the cord kicks in. Wow. And so you, it's about a 400-metre ravine that wow. you drop into. So you fall and then fall slower. and then Yeah, and then, and then, then the no. cord kicks wow. in, and then they have to abseil off the other side down to kind of tie you off to the, that guy, and so you're rescued from it. Oh, it's Imagine that, 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 that oh. dude's job. Yeah, <laughs> that he's selling like that. so good. Like, yeah. I mean, they've got all the right gears, and they know oh, what yeah. they're doing. Yeah. But for me, it was just like, oh, this, is, this is so cool. So they... Yeah. They let me do, which they don't often do, but there's no one else there. So we, um, what's called a coffin, which is you fall backwards oh. and just watch the watch bridge go away, which was – I've always wanted to do that. Yeah. But you can't do it like just jumping off stuff like, oh, you know, cliffs into the water and stuff yeah. like mm-hmm. that because, you know, hit the water, but in that case you're not. Yeah. So I did my jump and just standing there and it's just like somehow the world is – the giantness of the world is closer to you. Like, it's all there. Yeah, you're, you're just, like completely in the moment. Yeah, and you just, yeah. off you go. It's the best experience. It's just incredible. <laughs> it's just, I just can't imagine myself ever wanting to do that. But that, ah. that's, that's totally cool that you do that. I was just, yeah, man. And, and that's the difference is that yeah. I don't, again, I don't think that's about being a charger or it's not about courage. Yeah. It's just about some that my experience of that and and i know i'm not alone in it is just that that's where all this adrenaline and all of this 
sense of experiencing something really intensely mm. is something yeah. I've always been drawn to. And again, that has a shadow side to it mm. in that you can get sucked into a whole lot of brokenness as well. Mm. And sadly, in those early years of being a person trying to follow Jesus, I still had that part of my, my life that I was, was unchecked. Do you remember coming, like you've spoken a lot about having those two friendship groups and meeting Karen. Did you have a breaking point with that? Was yeah, something did. really had to shift? Yeah, it was It was Karen. It was yeah. getting serious with Karen and realising she might feel something toward me as well. And, and then I was just like, this is awesome. And yeah. it was just like everything else disappeared. And for Karen, she was about goodness she was she's a person that's just drawn to goodness like it's almost an opposite and she's drawn to and so she was always going to know jesus yeah. she was always going to have a relationship with jesus because she's drawn to people who are good who are loving who are kind and so as she was getting serious in her faith and i'm pursuing her then i'm everywhere where she is yeah you know and that was where the crossover came in yeah I've had a lot of a lot of unfinished relationships and still when i see those guys today they're not very kind because they just you know I bailed on them and i did yeah. I, and i look back now and i think yeah i did i did just kind of take off and just not want to be a part of that anymore and so christian surfers allowed me to stay involved in surf culture um, and keep surfing with people and in fact surf with a lot more people and get opportunities to surf, like to travel and surf, yeah. uh, which was awesome. Um, and it's so that I didn't lose the yeah. sport. Yeah. But I tell you, it changed immediately how I was in the water. Oh, yeah? Mm. Can you think of any? Like oh, just, just, just enjoying friendship. Oh, like yeah. all of a sudden it wasn't about getting, it was about sharing. Yeah, and giving huge, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's that's been it. in the water with others, yeah. and and it's the fellowship of that and the friendship of that, which took me back to my mate I learned to surf with, and just both of us cheering each other on and t- getting mm. a wave and going across a wave for the first time in our life, and and uh, celebrating that with each other. <laughs> yeah. going, you did it, you know, you did a turn, you did whatever it was, you took off on that wave, and. And he was great for that. Mm. But for whatever reason, he didn't continue surfing. He just got bored with it. Yeah. Well, it's such an interesting sport in that aspect where you've got a finite amount of waves. And sometimes, mm. so, like, the mindset of that where people get super competitive about that or have or start owning their own break, you know what I mean? Like, they have a very personal relationship with this is my break, this is where yeah. I surf, there's only going to be this, and it becomes that weird competitive thing. Oh, it's so it, strong. Isn't it? Yeah. It's so strong. I mean, I thought Cronulla was bad, and it's not. There's other parts of both Sydney and, and globally, some of the places I've surfed are so localised, yeah. like properly dangerous. Yeah. You, you're not allowed to surf there. You're simply not allowed to surf there. That's crazy. Um, and that's made really clear. Yeah. Um, so you know, got close to the water on one occasion where luckily I had a kindness of a guy come over and said, you you paddle out, your car will be burned and you'll probably... Where was that? It's in South Africa. Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah right. It's yeah, a, a place called Plettenberg uh, Bay. It's a really nice break, not far from um, 
super tubes and and that's so it's a decent drive but and it's just this localized point break and wow. the guy just said you your car will be burned and said, you'll probably get beaten up Thank you, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> thank, thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. I was yeah. like, oh, mate, thanks. Like, I just oh, turned around and yeah. straight back. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and uh, apparently it's like, I haven't surfed in Hawaii, but apparently Hawaii is the same. This is some places you you, you just don't go out. Yeah. And you've got to be known or you've got to find a way to be known out there. And you. So, Karen was a massive turning point. Do you remember the first time you met Karen? No, because we were in school together, but I didn't really know her. Again, this is this thing where she was part of that group that was kind of the people who were excelling at school and were – school was a a socially safe place for them. Yeah. I was not. And so I was just – how do I get out of here and how fast can I get out of here? So I left in year 10, uh, got an apprenticeship as a carpenter, and then – uh, that business went bust and oh, I lost okay. my apprenticeship. No, and yeah. so my folks were rightly just said, well, you're not going on the dole. Yeah. And it was during a time where there was a building collapse, like there was a collapse in the building industry and so there was just no work around at all. Mm. Couldn't even get labouring work. And they were saying, you got an apprenticeship. So I got a couple of labouring jobs and I was like, I'll just do this because mm. there's no way I'm going back to school. Yeah. And... Uh, my parents said, no, you get an apprenticeship or you go back to school, you, that's your choice. Yeah. And so I'm like, well, I can't. So I guess I'm going back to school. I was the most reluctant year 11, year 12. <laughs> yeah. And this this will give you insight yeah. into how little I understood of the faith. Mm. I went back to school because I thought two years, Jesus will come back before then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, that was yeah. part of my decision-making process. I mean, it's just seriously like it was so bad and so yeah. i didn't go to school on mondays because that was double mass double english so i was looking for a job on yeah, that day enough. so i'd go to carrying bar cs yeah no jobs go for a surf and come back and watch days of our lives or something like <laughs> this just not go to school yeah yeah and that's how i did my hsc really reluctantly mm-hmm. yeah as little as possible like I chose music, I can't play an instrument to save myself because I assessed that there'd be the least amount of work mm. yeah. that I'd have to do. Like this, this is the it reveals the self, the the estimation of myself mm. and my belief of what I would ever do in life. Mm. Um, uh, which just yeah, I think if my kids had felt that way about themselves, I would be really devastated. Do you think your parents knew? Like. My dad was pretty traditional. Yeah. So he was super disappointed I didn't get an apprenticeship because that's the way you do life. You get your apprenticeship and you set up for life. Yeah. Um, so I was always the black sheep. My brother and sister, again, not a Christian family, but my brother and sister didn't drink at all. They yeah. had nothing to do with party culture. And I was the opposite. And, you know, so really disappointing experiences for them of turning up home drunk with all my mates and my dad having to say, go away. Like, just go away. Yeah. Um, I don't want you around here like this. So he was having to deal with a lot as a traditional, old-fashioned, hard-working, blue-collar dude. Mm. Um, and my mum was just super, super supportive. I think I'm a lot like her. I think she had a lot of rebellion in her as well. And she loved rebellion. She was as cheeky as. But <laughs> so I think she got me. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know what to do, as yeah. I said. And so, you know. 
takes me along to church just in some vain hope that yeah. something might happen yeah. in that effort. And it's like, that's it's not going to help. <laughs> um, it's going to hurt, actually, because yeah. now I just feel like these people are weird. Mm. Um, Made you want to rebel even more? Yeah, because th- that's the problem with dealing with someone like, like I guess, a temperament like mine is that you get drawn to rebellion. Yeah. It wasn't. It really wasn't until much later in my life, in my 30s, that I actually identified as a mature and in, in growing in, in my Christian faith. Not okay. This yeah. is a part of this that's quite dark. I remember I used to have a T-shirt. I think I just got from like Target or somewhere like that. It wasn't, it was more a fashion statement than anything. But it used to be, you might remember these T-shirts had like a picture of Che Guevara on the front. Yeah. Yep. I didn't know anything about the dude. Just knew he was a rebel. Yeah. Like, and it looks cool. Yeah. And so I'm wearing this thing and it wasn't, and I realised one time when I was working this stuff through, you need to chuck that shit out. You know, I watched his story, Motorcycle Diaries, and then read a bit about him and went, dude, this guy's broken. Started out with amazing motivations of disrupting the injustices in South America, but then ends up basically a super violent dude, you know, stuck in the Cuban crisis. And I'm like, what are you wearing his image for? As a person of faith, why are you walking around with that image on? Yeah. And so, yeah, just chuck the T-shirt. Just went, that's yeah. that's got to go. And again, just constantly finding these places in my life where that rebellious temperament is manifesting in really unhelpful ways. I've always found that really challenging as well. Like, I think I have that. I I had a great reflection with Stu at the start of last year, where I kind of identified that I'm really bad at dealing with authority or people authority especially when they don't have a relationship with me yeah does that make sense like yeah and i'm just drawn towards that attitude of like we'll stuff you yeah like yeah if you if you're gonna act like that then stuff you and it's like and it is so tempting as a young man to go that way and i think there is a lot of that in culture you see the punk rock thing and that's never really gone away like that underlying tone of like well if i don't fit in here so we're going to go and let's just burn the whole thing down. Yeah, yeah. In a kind of a way. And, like, I think Christ, a big thing is, like, Christ hanging out with tax collectors and misfits and people's society doesn't value. Yeah. But also then realising that that attitude also isn't loving mm. to anyone. It's, no. And it's appealing to you. And, it's, and it can be an easier an escape, but yeah, I think I've done a lot of reflecting on that in the last couple of years about yep. my how that affects the way that I relate to other people. And I think yeah, yeah it's yeah, it's so tempting as a young man to be like, you know what, I don't actually fit in here, so stuff it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah look, I made it twenty-seven. <laughs> That's a good start <laughs> uh, because I wish I had that awareness. Yeah, it was a long time before I did, and so I was drawn even in the Christian world. Mm. There's still this way you can express it. Like I was rebellious in kinds of ways around, you know, burned down institutional church and yeah. anti-Christendom. Oh, yeah, okay, that's a movement. Okay, let's do, yeah, yeah, the way we do church is wrong. Let's burn it down. Let's tear it down. Mm. And just drawn to that. Yeah. And as you say, like I love your wisdom that you have at your age to go, I've got to watch that. Yeah. And I didn't have that. And I was drawn to anything that was about pushing against institutionalism, pushing against and, uh, any kind of authority that said to me, 
these are the boundaries. Yeah. It's like, well, they're great. Thanks for setting them because yeah. then I want to know how I'm going to push them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And again, please don't hear that as, oh, that's just a charging. No, that's a misunderstanding. Mm. It's drawn to the edges because that's where I'm excited. That's where I feel like it's meaningful. And in, in the Christian circle, in the Christian life, I think we can we can make meaning of that and make it a noble cause. Yeah. And sometimes it's just hurting the body. Mm. I've absolutely channeled right. You can be a disruptive thinker. You can uh, push uh, institution and push the boundaries that where it is limiting God or limiting the work of the Spirit or limiting the capabilities of, of what God is doing in this world in some way or restricting people from seeing all that God can do, then, yeah, it can be turned into channel to really positive stuff. Yeah. Um, and I th- like to think that I've also had those experiences but I've also had a lot of brokenness that I deeply regret yeah. and made a lot of choices that hurt people very, very dear to me mm-hmm. That and lost those relationships that I would do anything to still have them but can't because mm-hmm. of that brokenness, because of that just being drawn to the edge, drawn to be off the map. Yeah. Mm. You mentioned um, we kind of talked about how Karen was a real catalyst for you deciding to become a Christian. Mm. When you you did, like, when you think you made that that, fin- that final commitment, what was different in your life, do you think? Like what changed? Yeah, look, I, for me, practices um, became important. Um, community became important. So who I hung out with. Mm. People like, Interestingly, people that had always been there all of a sudden becoming aware of them. So as I think I've shared before, you know, Bev Crawshaw lived across the road, grew up with Bev across the road. Mm. Again, first Bible that you read was these people's lives. So all of a sudden you become aware of them. Wait a minute, that's what the Crawshaws are about. Wait a minute, that's what uh, that teacher was about. There was a teacher at Curley High that I went where I went who was, I found out later, was a Christian. And he just, he just saw me. I just felt like he looked straight through the daggy clothes and the stupid grin on my face, just daring people to take me on, that sort of rubbish. And he just looked straight through that. Just saw your value. To see your value, see who you are. You can be more than you're being. And he just, he was awesome. And I'm like, yeah, you're a Christian. I bet you're a Christian. Because there's just some sort of, fragrance and and so karen was about that so for me it was about be around those people yeah um and don't be around the people that you know are really uh, having a huge impact on who who you see yourself to be and the types of things you do that are shaping you yeah and then it was a little bit about the practices that i was involved in so you know becoming a christian in that sort of evangelical baptist culture it was you know have your quiet time go to church um it wasn't until later in life that I've learned of other practices that also really deepen my sense of connection with Jesus and, and uh, shape, I guess, I suppose, orientate me toward him uh, that have been, I wish I knew earlier. I feel bummed that I didn't know them. And, and I had my Pentecostal years where I learned a lot about the Holy Spirit. I was just like, hey, when I heard about any of this, and you can imagine again, <laughs> yeah. someone with my temperament learning about the power of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and gifts and all that stuff going on, you're like, oh, come on. Like, that's exciting. Yeah. And so there was a period of time where I was really drawn toward the Pentecostal movement, but 
there was, uh, in my experience of it, it's not a common experience, it's not a shot at Pentecostalism, but in my experience it was really shallow teaching and I'd grown up on solid Bible teaching and so it was like, I reckon that's got to be near the top um, in my, in any community that I'm involved in. And I'm sitting here and I don't know a lot about the Bible, but I know this guy that's preaching is just pulling stuff from all kinds of places and trying to tie them together and they they don't go together Mm -hmm. at all. This is, this is pop psychology. This is not the scriptures being taught. And so it was a lot of, a lot of different things like that, but I think community probably. Um, So a circle of friends formed and we're part of a life group. And those circle of friends were hugely important in my spiritual journey. And I, and to everybody's surprise, I remember one mate just laughing for way too long, started getting offensive when I said I was going to Bible college. Like, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, like, dude, that, I mean, that shocked everyone. Yeah. Because I was still really <laughs> almost come out as a Christian. There was this, because I'd lived so much of my life as in those two worlds. Mm. Yeah. These people in one world were just saw me as the same person. Yeah. Uh, so when I turned around and all of a sudden said, I'm going to Bible college, I've left my career and I'm going to do this, they were just like, I didn't even know you were a Christian. Like, wow. So I just, and that was that was big deal for me. That yeah. was where I massively, like I can't tell you how much I grew in those three years of, of Bible college and just all that that college stretched me in. Um, in my faith and my understanding and then a, a circle of Christian friends who I took with me um, and who just encouraged me. And next minute I knew I was like full-time Christian, kind of vocationally, like yeah. working in the ministry and just going, what have I got here? <laughs> <laughs> what age were you going to Bible college then? Uh, I want to say 25. Okay. So in between finishing school and going to Bible mm. college, what was like kind of your I went into work? the hospitality industry. Mm. Um, so I was working uh, first a job that I'm pretty sure my mum set up for me. Um, again, because I was never going to get a job anywhere. I don't know how I got this job, so I can only be my must have pulled some strings. <laughs> um, mm. Someone did. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I did that. It was customs clearance job. And then I uh, met a guy at a wedding reception who worked for Hilton Hotels. And I was like, oh, can you get me a job? He's like, yeah, sure. So I worked at Airport Hilton and then actually went really fast through management and ended up in as a senior manager in uh, for Hilton Hotels on the east coast of Australia. So open Conrad Jupiter's yeah. casino and yeah. places, absolutely wholesome place. And, um, <laughs> and, you know, I was involved in the opening of Cairns Hilton and worked at Sydney Hilton. And, yeah, just um, thought... The hospitality industry was the thing for me and then I had a really weird moment where it was in a time where computers were not a full-time part of the workforce yeah. and so I was really good at turning them off and turning them back on again to, to make them work. <laughs> and so I became the IT manager. <laughs> absolutely no idea what I was doing other than the power switch was the answer to everything. <laughs> And, of course, quickly found I shouldn't be in this job. And I went into consulting and installing IT. IT. Can you believe it? In the hospitality industry. Yeah. Seriously, the worst five months of my life. Like, I just remember going to this consulting firm. I did quite well there. We got a lot of work and 
they they wanted to make me uh, they wanted to promote me into this new contract we'd won in New Zealand, and I was like, oh, how about no? Like, <laughs> and I, I, seriously, I can't tell you how many times I've sat in the cubicle of those that office building, just balling my eyes out, just going, I don't know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Oh yeah, uh, I, I'm so lost. Um, and then Karen was doing HR at the time. And she was involved in all those personality tests, inventory, like Myers Briggs and stuff. So she pulls that magic on me and it just yeah. says, you, sh- you should not be doing what you're doing. Yeah. And it was social work. Um, so then I ended up getting pursuing studies in social work and ended up in a counselling degree at Table College. Wow. Just mm. so, at, so that's at Bible College, sorry? Or is that? Yeah. Oh, wow, yeah okay. So that was Table College is a Pentecostal Bible College. Okay. Um, just. They opened a Sydney campus the year that year. Uh, Karen and I were going back from the beach one day, like literally no shoes, sand all over us. And <laughs> I don't know why we drove past, but we did. And we went in to find out, just like, I suppose, get a brochure. Yeah. And the principal's there, this guy named Barry Chant, who's like super well known in the, be kind of the Mike Frost or the, I don't know what the Anglican version of that would be. Um, but a well known kind of thinker in those circles he's there as the principal he's like i'll come through and have an interview we're just like what is going on oh he's karen told this story yeah 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 yeah. and um yeah they just said why don't you just come do two weeks just no don't have to pay just check it out if you don't like it discern was the first time i heard the word discernment (laughs) i just try and discern yeah whether this is what's right for you and i those two weeks i was just like like it was what's what's that analogy of like a rabbit on the end of a fire hose like just so much information, so much I just didn't know. Mm. Just in two weeks, and I was just like, I am in. Yeah. Like, I'm so in. Yeah. Is it a dog or a rabbit? A it's something. It's something that it shouldn't have its mouth on a hose. Yeah, I think it's a dog. A <laughs> 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 Okay, sure. I didn't. No, no, it's as soon as it went in my head, I'm like a, a starting a sentence, I don't really know where it's going to go. Anyway, you get the analogy. <laughs> It was a lot of information, <laughs> a little bit overwhelming. <laughs> You're a big dog, not a, not a big rabbit. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Um, what was the other question I was going to ask you? Oh, yeah. You, um, even when I asked you the question about chips, you've already mentioned Switzerland, Canada, South Africa. Before we were getting on the podcast, we talked about you um, walking 100 and something kilometres in Spain. Travel is obviously a big thing for you. Why is yeah. that? I just I feel very privileged. Um, partly as professional, mm. partly just personal interest. Um, but yeah. Um, well, you say you like being off the map, but it sounds like you like being on different parts of the map. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But in a lot of those circumstances, without without a plan of where we're going, mm. um, in many yes, because uh, travelling with other people. Uh, but where I felt most alive again is is travelling in countries where. There isn't even a map for where I am. So um, so I had a, a role uh, for a long time that involved a lot of international travel. So that took me through Af- much of sub-Saharan Africa and uh, some of the Middle East and uh, Asia, South Asia and Southeast Asia and uh, through the Pacific. Um, and then just personally, again, because you, when you're in a travelling job, you rack up a lot of miles. Um, you, I was able to have the opportunity to travel to Europe. And then I got a role uh, that took me to the Americas and to Europe quite regularly. And so um, 
was able to use those opportunities to do a bit of additional travel and have a look around places. And uh, yeah, so that was just in two different ministries, uh, international ministries, where my role was international leadership. Um, so needing to be moving around and meeting people and connecting with people in those parts of the world. So yeah, had a huge privilege, mostly in the developing world, but then personally we've also had the privilege of traveling through some other parts of the world that are really cool mm. um, so yeah i really love uh, and i really love travel like again because of that just going off and the sense of adventure but the perfect holiday for me is just land and not have anything booked and let's yeah. just go let's just go and <laughs> see where we end up yeah. And, yeah. and exploration doesn't always go well that's yeah. the thing that's, <laughs> that's the rule in our family is, you oh, know we're going to go really on an adventure doesn't mean it's going to turn out all right. Mm. Makes um, good stories, though. Yeah, it makes oh. for great stories, yeah. and it makes for a great experience mm. if you're set up to go, this is kind yeah. of fun. Yeah, exactly. Um, even though, yeah, sometimes the outcome is just, this is lame. Like, yeah. This is a stupid <laughs> oh. place, and it's not anything like <laughs> we thought it would be. You know? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so that that's that's why I've had a chance to see a fair bit of the world. How did you... I'm trying to make the connection here between you travelling internationally for the roles that you had and studying counselling at Bible College. Yeah, yeah, look, that's a yeah, complicated journey. I, <laughs> I did 10 years of uh, as a counsellor. Um, and is that p- particularly marriage counselling or is it uh, different uh, More broadly, it wasn't yep. just marriage counselling. Uh, I set up a, a counselling practice out of a church that was really trying to address gaps in services. So the passion again, note the theme, was not necessarily just to provide more counselling for people struggling with anxiety and depression and marriage, but to identify those people who there's no services for. So uh, particularly in that time, uh, deliberate self-injury was a really big uh, uh, phenomena that was not well understood, particularly by the health professions and allied health professions. So... uh, really trying to understand this is not, as it was often interpreted as a suicide attempt, this isn't, this person's actually trying to stay alive. Uh, So trying to understand the practice of cutting and burning by the the person themselves as a form of emotion regulation, as a form of actually controlling the pain that they were feeling internally that they couldn't resolve. So understanding that, exploring that, studying that, looking at, at one of the services we set up, we were able to get a partnership with the University of California uh, because I was asking a lot of questions at the time about kids with ADHD. So in that time, again, as I was practising, that was exploding. So all of a sudden ADHD was a diagnosis. A lot of kids were getting it. Everyone was getting it that had behavioural difficulties. And yeah. so the pharmacological approach to that was, was medication that was bombing a lot of kids out. Mm. And so their parents were going, I don't know if this is better or worse. And so I wanted to explore the social elements to that and the systemic elements to that. So we did and we discovered a, an approach called parent-child interaction therapy that was about in, in vivo coaching. So we built a facility that had a reverse mirror, so one of those kind of FBI mirrors. And <laughs> so you parent and the child are the only people in the therapeutic room and they've got a bug in their ear and you're coaching them on how to actually relate to their child and, and walk them through a tantrum and manage that wow. tantrum and manage oppositional behaviour and distracted behaviour by through connection. 
And uh, so we worked with the University of California to bring that um, therapy to Australia. And uh, so it's things like that because we were coming across a lot of families that were just, they were really struggling with how to love their kids and how to provide the right environment for their children who were struggling at school, struggling at home, struggling with violence, who were, they knew were beautiful kids, but they just had no way of expressing the tension that they felt. And so uh, we did do a lot of the conventional counselling, but we also drifted into places where we thought there's no services to help those people. And to me, that had a that had a gospel meaning to it in the yeah. sense of seeing Jesus' ministry and identifying those on the margins and those who were seen as by society in some negative way that just kind of enabled them to stay in their suffering rather than actually be liberated from it. So those things collided for me theologically and then, and then socially in terms of the practice that I wanted to set up. And, and it also involved people that God brought around me, extraordinary people, so I didn't do it alone. I had the privilege of working with those people. And then through a series of events that are for some other podcast, um, a lot of brokenness, a lot of the, what we've been talking about, been drawn to the edges of things, both good and bad reasons. Uh, I ended up stepping away from all of that. Um, so stepped away from all the practice uh, elements of it. Stepped away. By that time, I was also involved in ministry as a pastor for mission, and the mission elements, and particularly international stuff. Part of that service was we'd opened an office in Burma, uh, which was a long story about, again, uh, working with children in Burma at the time. It was very much closed, as it is again now, but uh, there was a lot of uh, children who were orphaned by very, very sinister practices by the military junta of the time. And uh, we wanted to... I'd I'd become a specialist in trauma, uh, so I was interested particularly in trauma and its impact on children. And so we had explored that and that had turned into a three-year project in Burma. And all of that had opened up my eyes to, hey, I think I want to explore the international elements of what giftings I've had, the experience and training that I've had. How could I use that in international environments, which led me to working with a couple of international NGOs that work with with, uh, community development, so poverty reduction, advocacy, uh, working with humanity in humanitarian situations with significant violence and what's known as psychosocial support so particularly focused on working with communities that are affected by severely traumatic experiences as a community or where it's entrenched so places of violence war uh, where those communities actually feel saner they feel more calm when everything is turned upside down and when it's chaotic, uh, which is a lot of uh, study and research that's gone into why that is. And so, again, drawn to the edges, I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm all about that. Like, I want to understand that. I want to intervene or I want to at least participate with agencies that are intervening in that way, And which just led me to working with a couple of agencies that had that kind of reach. Yeah. This is why I asked you the question about risk tolerance because you seem to have been able to take on a lot of things that a lot of people wouldn't do. Right. So whether it's counselling and then trying, like trying new things, that's what I'm like. Unknowing what you've, uh, uh, what we've talked about previously, you and I, but also just 
the things that you're telling us today is that yeah, you, you talk about being drawn to the edges, but you're willing. I you feel like you like God's given you those gifts to be willing to try new things in order to either help people or just like see if you can make a difference or yep. all that kind of stuff. Is that is that how you would read that too? Because um, a lot of people would go, well, "I'm not going to threaten my career or yeah, my sure. um, uh, my stability in my life by doing yep. those things." But you're going into like war torn areas and all that kind of stuff, and you're like. How much are you relying on God when it comes to that stuff? Uh, in some cases, very, very much. Um, in other cases, I wish more than I... I wish I did rely more on God than I did. Um, like all things, you start to become familiar with it, and that's not always a good thing. It breeds a level of just, not contempt, but complacency yeah. in your actions. And so... I'd, be, I'd become so complacent, you know, I travelled quite a lot and so, you know, I'd turn up at airports, I wouldn't even know the next port I was going to, it was that kind of complacency and on one occasion, the country I was going to, I was going to India, I had no visa, I hadn't arranged a visa for myself, so I was like, okay, well, I'm not going there and, <laughs> like, well, that's terrible, uh, that yeah. was, a, that wasted money, that was, that was not good, so... I think, and I went into circumstances sometimes unprepared. Um, so I found myself in a couple of I found myself in a couple of situations where, yeah, it's, this is not good. Um, and uh, I could have prevented this if I had been more uh, prepared than I was. Uh, I guess so. It is that same balance that you were talking about before of just trying to have wisdom and self-awareness about why am I being drawn to this? What's pushing me toward it? Is that good? And then what do I need to be mindful of that you're talking about, Joel, of that others would be mindful of? Like what are the safety checks that should be in place yeah. here? What's the, the controls that should be in place here that aren't? Um, and, yeah, so I, I've probably way too late become aware of some of those things and that, did lead to me being into some dangerous mm. situations. Um, and is that the, that's the kind of um, uh, you you talk about? There's some being some darknesses around that kind of approach, and that's is that what you one of the things you're referring to there? Is it just? It's one of the things. I mean, it also can happen in relationships. Like you can mm. be you can be unsafe in relationships, and what you're drawn to as well. But I think uh, circumstances for sure. Mm. Yeah, uh, and again, I. I've been told there's only one or two people in my life that know those experiences and and counsellors and people I've had to do debriefing with yeah. and uh, to make sense of what happened and what I could have done different and what I couldn't have done was going to happen anyway. Um, particularly when you travel in the developing world, uh, most of life for people living in the developing world is uncertain. Uh, your government doesn't support you. Their law and order is more a suggestion. Uh, society is geared toward that level of uncertainty and therefore criminal elements and other elements 
just kind of flourish and those mm. environments. And people so, are taking what they can get oh, for that for that very no, reason. Absolutely. Yep. But in the midst of that as well, please don't hear that that's the characterization of a developing situation. Yeah. There is also tremendous joy and beauty and incredible amount of goodness in those environments. But yeah, you you can't travel to those worlds as you know, Beth has found out a number of times. Um yeah, she's done some travel in some parts of the world where, you know, roads, for example, like the greatest danger to the work I've done is actually road accidents. You know, they talk about, you know, the most expensive elements of the work that I was involved in was kidnapping ransom and, and you know, kind of uh, uh, being a Westerner who's the target for those kinds of things. That's really minor. Uh, mostly it's about just getting really bad illnesses and I've had a couple of rippers and, and car accidents. Like terrible car accidents, so mm. driven on roads where you're literally looking. There's no fence. Yep. It's kind of a road, and it's a you know a couple of hundred meter ravine, and there's trucks and buses and cars at the bottom of that ravine, just littered where they've gone off the road, and presumably many many people have died, particularly in the buses uh, that are always packed. Um, I've been in four wheel drives going up a road where a bus is coming at us in the rain, and it's realised it's not going. We're not going to both fit on that road, and it's hit the brakes and it's sliding at us sideways, and and just and there's a ravine, like so there's nowhere for the driver to go. So you just got to wear the side of that bus and hope it doesn't push you off the ravine. Mm. Um. So, and that's that's life for them. Mm. Yeah, they're just that, used to that. They, that's level their of highway risk they drive on every yeah. week or month, or yeah. as they come to and from the city. And so I've seen a lot of those roads and I've been on a lot of those roads and, and you know, it, it's a, a side of life that I think, again, you can actually, as a professional in that space, you can plan around and I often didn't. Yeah. Yeah, okay. You mentioned um, Beth, your daughter. Yep. Can you tell us more about your family and what uh, God has taught you through having, obviously, um, being married to Karen and then also... Um, having kids, um, Jake is your son. Is yep. it Jake? Yeah. yeah, Jake and Beth are your, your son and daughter. Yep. Tell them. Tell us about them and yeah, what God's taught you. Oh, what's God's taught me? Wow. Yeah. Like I often say that they're the they're the people I call home. Um, I've rarely understood a uh, a place as home. They are home to me. Um, yeah, I feel that way to a degree too. Yeah, yeah. And I really sense they are my, they're, they're who I belong to as well. So that's where I've found my belonging. Um, and so, yeah, Karen and I have been blessed to have two children. Jake is our oldest. He's, he's just turned 30 and he's got two kids now, so I'm granddad. Um, so Vinny is our grandson. Mm. He's probably three now. And um, Maeve, our granddaughter, has turned one. Uh, so... And Jake's married to Trista. And and then, yeah, my daughter Beth, uh, she's uh, 25 and, yeah, just really starting out in life and just got a, you know, just a wonderful, kind, gentle spirit. And I think, I think if I've learned anything from them, it is, it's actually to live under grace, um, to live under people's grace when they see the kind of, knob you can be <laughs> and they yeah. their love's just unconditional yeah. Yeah. you know they just remain to you they remain connected they look to the best they want the best from you yeah 
you don't always, you don't often hit it, but when you do, it's just like for them, it's like, yeah, like that's who you should be. That's who we want you to be. So they call the best out in me often, um, which, you know, for me is really important and they ground me. Uh, the, again, that sense of connection and belonging to somebody. I, I think I could have been easily someone who just drifted and if I didn't connect with Karen. Um, she she connected me to people and she grounded me in a church and in a community and helps me understand why that's valuable, why that's important. But I'm, I'm really super comfortable on mine. Um, and so I think if I didn't meet Karen, I just, I really wonder mm. if I would have been someone that just would have travelled and, and just was kind of just everywhere and anywhere and known no, to nobody. Nomad. Yeah, just yeah. known to nobody. Mm. They've given me that sense of connection and that grounds me, grounds me in uh, loves and life. Just, you know, Jake, I was so pleased that Jake loved the ocean and we <laughs> surfed together. That's cool. And that was, and I remember taking him and his mates surfing and just, Feeling like I was one of them. I'm, clearly, they weren't thinking that, but I was. <laughs> um, you know, and just loving that time with them, and then and with Beth. You know, she loves the mountains, and she's like me. She's quiet, and so her happy place is in the mountains alone. And as f- the further away from people, the better. The colder it is, the better. <laughs> and so there's this sense of connection with with people that is beyond the connections you'll have with anybody else, mm. and that is. So meaningful um, to have shared life uh, with people, uh, people that you admire. Like, it's not just that I love them because of my family. I actually really admire them and uh, and have come to really respect them as they've become adults and just go, look at the better choices that you're making than I made. Like, the maturity that Beth shows at 25 and the the strength and resilience that Jake shows at 30, I'm just like, you know, people say, oh, someone just literally yesterday said to Karen, oh, you've raised a great kid in talking about Jake. And I just feel like really guilty. I'm like, dude, no, I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> like, that, that's a God's grace. Mm-hmm. But I honestly, when I, because they do, they see you in all your most ordin- ordinary moments. Yeah, they do, yeah. And they still love you. Yeah. Um, and they still res- they still respect you, and they still want you, even if they I've done things and they know those things, where I know that I've broken their heart and I've really saddened them, and yet what I experience with them is a deep desire for me to be better than that. Uh, and so my son and I, when he turned sixteen, we got a tattoo together uh, <laughs> that says "One Blood," and it was his ideas, his design. And his understanding of that and his meaning that he made of that was that one blood was about firstly being under the blood of Christ together and that we are one blood. Now, that was in a time that was a difficult time for him and I where he could have gone, you're a loser and I don't want anything to do with you. Yeah. And instead his choice was, no, you, you're, you and me are family. And he doubled down that you can't, in no words to describe the experience of that kind of grace. Uh, that are shown to the and it seems to me the people closest to us are the people that we hurt most profoundly because we love them the most oh mate yeah. and and yet why do we not rise to that in the sense of being the best and better version of ourselves 
rather we tumble into sometimes the most ordinary version of ourselves. Yeah. Right now, ask a question. <laughs> huh? <laughs> Are you okay? Question. Yeah, 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 fine. <laughs> Do we want to ask the last <laughs> question? Uh, I wasn't the oh, actually a question just before the last question I was going to ask. Sorry, you're just making me think of my relationship with my own son. Um, yeah. Uh, just tell us what you're doing now for a job. Because it's, you've told me a little bit about it. It's really fascinating. <laughs> Nobody understands it. So <laughs> even Karen doesn't really understand it. Uh, look, it's a consulting firm. Uh, it works in the faith-based sector. So we work with churches and Christian organisations. And we have an intellectual property called Redemptive Design. So it's, it's a design process that helps people, whether they be individual entrepreneurs whether they be NGOs looking at new programs and services, mostly internationally, whether it be the church looking for different ways it can engage in its context, design programs, design themselves, their entity and how they go about what they do. Uh, it's about being alongside, so our, our values as a consulting firm, but our values first and foremost is to be a guide. Uh, so it's to, to very much walk alongside of, people and have them discover uh, what they feel God's calling them to do. Um, it's a, Adventure is one of our values set before I arrived um, that is about venturing off the map and helping people who want to venture off the map. Mm. It's a table host. So it's about connecting people. And so we, we really work with through a model that cultivates imagination. So the most important part of design for many social organisations and, and faith-based organisations is to go straight to the engineering kind of mentality of, oh, we do this and then that'll lead to this and that'll lead to this. But they miss the part that is about imagination, that is just about opening yourselves up to saying, and this is our theological posture, God is actually already at work. Mm. And it's helping people make an important paradigm shift that so many people don't realise they need to make where they see themselves as a big circle and of which one of the circles in their life is God, it's their career, it's their family or all the circles that make up their life. What we would argue is, no, God is the bigger circle. God is the creator of the universe. He yeah. is the maker of all things and we are one of the circles in that kingdom. Yeah. So understand and discern what he's already doing and then get in the way of it, like like connect to it and be mm. a part of it. Yeah. So that's that paradigm shift. And then imagine and discern, sense what God is doing. So we yeah. actually have processes to help them do that. And then you want to bring people together. So then it is really about, you know, the kind of capitalization of of collective action, like getting people together and really getting them moving and working together. Uh, so find the stakeholders, find the people that have got a common interest and don't do it alone. And then once you've done that, work out the local know-how. So wherever you're trying to work, whether it's in Ukraine or it's in, you know, Western Sydney, there's people there that know about the solutions that have to be created. Find out that local knowledge before you bring something outside uh, to that. And then, then finally, courage and compassion. You know, be courageous uh, and 
be prepared to have compassion, which is the greatest calling on any of us, the scariest calling as far as I'm concerned, if, if you take compassion to mean to suffer with. And that, that I found incredibly difficult. I've stood in circumstances where I've gone, no, I'll be separate from this, thank you very much. Um, as a big fat white guy in walking around Southeast Asia, you just look like a giant. Um, and when you're the head of an NGO or you've got a senior leadership with an international NGO, you're a rock star. And that is really confronting because you walk into communities and you haven't said anything, they know nothing about you and all of a sudden you're their only hope. And that's really overwhelming. So I was walking into a particular slum in the Philippines and I was just coming down this road and... Uh, and I was thinking about this notion of compassion. It's something that's plagued me most of my career um, because I'm just not prepared to suffer with at times. It's overwhelming, the suffering that I've uh, witnessed. And yet I've also seen hope there, so it's not all hopeless. And this lady, I, I spotted her through a crowd. I absolutely spotted her, whether it was God preparing me or whatever. And she was locked in on me and she was walking toward me through the crowd and then when she became probably about, I don't know, six, ten feet away, it was evident she was carrying a baby. And she came straight at me and just shoved this baby into my chest. I had no choice but to grab it because I literally thought, mm. if I don't, it's going it. to end up on the ground. Yeah. And she's speaking to me in Tagalog and I've got no idea. And my interpreter is just in my ear saying, give the baby back. And I'm like, I'm trying to give the baby back. And, <laughs> and, and of course we did and people intervened. It was almost like a scuffle over this baby and then of course we had to retreat from the setting because it got really charged and there's a lot of screaming and yelling and so we're back in the car kind of pulling away from the community and I just said what happened and this lady just said to me in her words take my child so the courage to give up my child for a better mm future was so strong that she is prepared to lose a child in order for it to have a future and that this is so misplaced that experience in every way mm. that but you realize it just reminded me again of the incredible power inherent when you walk in those communities as a donor it changed the way i walked entered many of those communities how i prepared for those communities and some of the other experiences that reminded me of the power I can't shed. Um, mm. But I was also confronted with, but I, I just want the solution to be somebody else to create, not me. Mm. And so for me, I was quite uh, affected by that, still am, because I can't think of what it takes for a mother to be prepared to make that kind of a decision and just trying to enact it as though it was ever going to work, but just the level of desperation that she felt. And I've seen a lot of that, and I'll, I'll live with that all my life, the sense of uh, despair and how powerful it can be. And then also I can also, which we don't have time for, to tell stories of where God's intervened mm. in miraculous ways that genuinely had nothing to do with me, but he used me. I can, and I know it had nothing to do with me because I was inside my head and inside the experience and I was complaining and moaning about the whole thing and yet God used me.
Uh, so that level of that's my job now is to try and help people of faith who want to create change in the world design that well and coach mm. them to try and deliver that change and be prepared and, like you're saying yeah and be prepared and know and do it with well do it work hard because it dignifies the people that you're trying to serve mm. yeah um, yeah be if you want to be other centered then then give up a lot of your own comforts and and strive to see that that person is the object of your effort and of your determination to be used by God, your openness to God, your discernment of what God's doing already as he goes before us, he comes behind us. He's everywhere. Like, how do we just rest in that? Uh, is how I, what I mostly coach people in. I think that's a really good leading to the next question. But I, I was... um. I was just remembering when I, I think even this morning I was having a shower or something. I was remembering that you were coming on the podcast, and I remembered something. That I thought one of the funniest things you ever said was, um, uh, I think Stu was talking about like I can't wait to be in heaven, and I'll be rid of like whatever injuries he's had and all that kind yeah. of stuff. And then you said, um, "Yeah, I reckon I'll be in the workshop for a long time before I get into heaven." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, that was really, really funny. But the reason I'm going <laughs> to, I don't know why it made me think of that, but I thought of it as a good lead into the next question is what do you wish you knew as a Christian when you were younger that you do know now? Yeah, I think when you asked me that before, um, what comes to mind is know how powerful those deep longings are inside of you mm-hmm. and how they shape how you behave and what you search for in life. Um, Whether you're longing for love, you're longing for acceptance, you're longing to belong, all of those things I deeply longed for, but they were unchecked. And they can find, and you know, the whole time, this is the grief that you feel the whole time, I'm in relationship with a God who cannot better express love and belonging and acceptance. And yet I just was madly searching for it everywhere else. Mm-hmm. And it's right in front of me in a deep relationship with Jesus in ways that can be made very personal, even though it is not about him fitting into us, it's about us fitting into him and, and mm-hmm. us understanding him as, as sovereign over everything. Trying to tell myself everything that you're pursuing, that you feel inside of yourself is absolutely right, is driven by a deep longing and some of that's broken know it be aware of it be really wary of it mm. and make yourself accountable accountable to people about those longings because they will they can lead you to absolute destruction because yeah. they're corrupted by sin yeah, right? yeah. yeah. and they they're placed in a world of broken people mm. and uh and you know, I think if I had done those things, the losses and the pain experienced and that I've um, created for others would have been mitigated and or certainly lessened. Um, I'm not saying I would have been perfect by any stretch, but gee, I know there's a bunch of things I would have done very differently if I was just aware of what I was actually, the, long, the deeper longings that were driving my my decisions, my thinking, the narratives I was building around, the behaviour that I was kind of, I had, 
that I was telling myself that can then all of a sudden in, in, a, in a moment, it can be light can shine on it and you see it for what it is. Yeah. Uh, if I could tell myself as a younger Christian, do everything you can, get counselling, get coaching, get pastoral care, get a good mate, yeah. um, those who are safe and grounded and healthy around you and tell them or get them to help you what, understand what those longings are. And then have mastery over them. It's not about control. Mm. It is about mastery. Mm. Because I think God has, for whatever reason, has made us completely, incredibly complex and deep beings. Mm. And in this side of, you know, new creation where there is just brokenness, I think we can at best have mastery. Mm. He also gives us, you know, his spirit to master that, right? Hundreds of yeah. yeah. And it's that fruit of the spirit, if that's not evident, Seriously, you don't need to be looking at any other behaviour. If all you can see is the things that the scriptures clearly say, if this is manifest in your life, then something's off and the spirit is not manifest in how you relate in those most private moments to people, to yourself, to the world, to your car if it's playing up. Seriously, that is where you've got to ask the serious questions about what's actually driving me and how do I calibrate myself which I think comes down to no great big one moment, but daily calibration to Jesus, mm. to genuinely have him as your north. Um, the compass can be out three degrees. doesn't matter on a daily basis. Jesus matters over a lifetime where you end up. Yep. Well, I think it's probably a good time to wrap up chips. Wrap up yeah, right. <laughs> but... Um, I just want to say thanks, Eve, Anthony, for being on the podcast. It's been a real encouragement. And I know that... You were saying there are quite a few things you regret in your life, but I think uh, your willingness to say that is actually a really big encouragement to mm. us and I hope for the people that are listening because, like, um, you've talked about, like, the, you know, the fascination with the edges and, and all that kind of thing that it could, it could lead you into darkness. But I think God's given you those things to be an encouragement for other people, like, you're just talking about how you're helping other people make a difference in the world that mm. are Christians and wanting to make changes amongst as a world that is corrupted by sin, as we said before, right? So I don't think you're the only one that's been searching for belonging, and I think God has put you on this path. This is my reading of it, that to encourage other people that there, there is hope. And I think that's been what been a massive encouragement for us today. Great. Thanks, yeah, God. and I think it's it's... It's so so encouraging to see how you want to go about making change, mm. but it's even more encouraging that you're partnering with God and Jesus mm. to do that, because mm. that's the only way that we're ever going to get anything real done. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, anything sustainable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think we can pull a lot of stuff off ourselves, but it won't last. Yeah, it just mm. won't. And we're and like we're meaning. Like yeah, you've yeah. been saying that a lot in the podcast. Like, what what is actually meaningful? Mm. Yeah. Um, and that's another thing again another encouragement that I've got from you so yeah thank you yeah. thanks for thank you me. very much uh, we always like to finish with a one way so if you're happy to finish up with that sure, that'd be great alright thanks for everyone listening and one way one way